everybody. Welcome back to On The Mix. I'm your host, Lindsay, and today we're spicing things up with a bit of a Christmas episode. Christmas is just a couple days away, and this was a little bit challenging for me to think about what exactly to talk about for Christmas, because I know that some people might not like Christmas or they might not even be fans of typical Christmas music. However, I think I hit the nail on the head with this one because this particular song by the Pogues is quite a different Christmas song. It's not your typical Christmas song. I'm sure a lot of you know this song or maybe some of you don't know this song, but I guarantee you, you've heard this song somewhere in your life. Even if you might not be familiar, I'm sure you've heard this song somewhere. And the background story of how this song actually even came to be is quite interesting. I never even really took the time to really understand this song and like the whole backstory about this song and the whole recording process of the song or who even the Pogues were. I have no idea. However, again, it's a bit of a non-Christmas but Christmas song because it's one of the most popular Christmas songs in the UK. So without further ado, I am going to take you guys through the story of how the Pogues came out with their probably most popular song and also how it became kind of an underdog story. There's a bit of a discrepancy in terms of how the story for the song came about in the first place. There is kind of an agreement that it first came out from an idea from the Pogues producer Elvis Costello, which by the way, I did not know that Elvis Costello was the Pogues producer. I had no idea that he even was a producer. So that's a bit of a mind-blowing fact. So some people think that Elvis Costello came up with the idea because he thought it would be funny, like a funny challenge if the band were to try and come up with a Christmas song. It's almost like a, oh, you guys can't come up with a Christmas number one hit single, kind of like challenging them in a way. And they were like, okay, well, we'll try that. So that's kind of one version of the story. Another version is that the Pogues manager stated that it was originally his idea that the band should try and write a Christmas song because he thought it would be interesting. Now, from my basic understanding of the Pogues, they're kind of a Celtic punk rock band. That's my basic rundown, my basic understanding of the music that they produce. So for them to even consider coming out with a Christmas song was almost like unfathomable. Like for their type of music, it would almost seem like that wouldn't make sense for them to do. Ironically enough, what they come up with is awesome. It's really, really good. So their banjo player, Finer, came up with the melody and the original concept for the song, which was set in County Clare on Ireland's West Coast involving a sailor in New York looking out over the ocean and reminiscing about being back home in Ireland. So I'm sure a lot of Irish Americans and Irish people can probably come together on this whole story. And those of us who have um, Irish ancestry, those of us like in New York or somewhere else in New England or around the general area with a big Irish population, Um, I'm sure we can probably all say that this song speaks to those specifically that have Irish ancestry of those ancestors that came from Ireland over to America to have a new life. And it's kind of that, it's kind of that feel. It's kind of like, you know, 
you're you're out of your element you're in this country and you're just reminiscing about your homeland of ireland so that's kind of what the basic rundown of the song is about so lead singer shane mcgowan had decided to name the song after a jp don levy 1973 novel called a fairy tale of new york which their banjo player finer was reading at the time and had left lying around a copy of the book at the recording studio so this all kind of came about around 1985 1986 at the beginning of 1986 in january the band recorded the song during the sessions with elvis costello that would produce the Pogatry and Motion EP of theirs with bass player Kat O'Rourdon. I hope I said that correctly. By the way, I'm probably not going to say a lot of these names correctly, so forgive me on that one. Um, but their bass player Kate was also here on this recording session, and she was singing the female part initially for this Christmas song. Elvis Costello suggested naming the song Christmas Eve in the Drunk Tank, after the song's opening lines, but the band didn't really like that idea. Shane pointed out to Elvis Costello that a song with that title was unlikely to be positively received by the public and played on the radio. The majority of the lyrics had been written while Shane was recovering in bed after being struck down with double pneumonia during a tour of Scandinavia in late 1985. But despite numerous attempts at recording this Christmas song, the band was just perpetually so unhappy with the results. They just couldn't really get the feel for it correctly. So it was temporarily put aside until they could return to it a bit later. So now we're coming up in March 1986 and the Pogues were on their U.S. tour. And this was the first time that they were to tour the U.S. And... It was kind of almost like fate had it be that the opening date of this U.S. tour was in New York. And of course, I think a lot of us know that New York has a really big bustling Irish American population. They come to the U.S. and I think they're rightfully welcomed by the Irish American community over there. What's actually interesting was while they were on their New York tour during this whole time in March, they actually were visited by two people that were to be integral to this Christmas song. And I know all of you have to know this second person, but the first person that they were to meet at this concert backstage was filmmaker Peter Daughtry. Peter is also known for bringing rap music to MTV as he was one of the heads of the company. And I'm sure I didn't say his name right. Peter, Peter, da Peter Daugherty, Peter Daughtry, Peter Daugherty. That's a hard name to say. Again, I do apologize. I'm not the great at pronouncing things, okay? So they meet him. The second Irish-American person that they were to meet is actor Matt Dillon. Yes, actor Matt Dillon was at this concert in New York, and they met him backstage. And both Peter and Matt Dillon would later become friends with the Pogues, and they would play an important role in the music video for Fairy Tale of New York. I know that Matt Dillon is a big-time actor. To be honest, I haven't seen him in anything lately, but he was definitely really, really popular later on, I would say, 90s, 2000s around there. But this was the late 80s. I'm sure maybe, what was he doing back then? I don't know. But anyway, that's one of the things that he, that he did. So some inspirations for this Christmas song was Sergio Leone's film Once Upon a Time in America, 
which Shane and their whistle player, Spider Stacy, would watch over and over again on the tour bus during this American tour. Um, because they were so enraptured by New York and what New York had to bring in terms of, you know, because New York City and Ellis Island is a big thing with immigration and with the whole song being about, you know, an Irish implant in New York missing and reminiscing on Ireland, I think it kind of made sense for them to draw inspiration from that story. So that makes sense to me. And they were definitely influenced by the film score by Ennio Morricone. He is a massive, massive, massive massive musical composer. The intro for A Fairy Tale in New York would later be edited together with the more upbeat original melody to create the final song. So while they were kind of going around and trying to record this song between the span of a couple of months, while they were doing this, their record label ran into financial difficulties. And although as the label still owned the rights to the Pogues recordings, this unfortunately meant that a distribution deal had to be negotiated with a new label to release any Pogues material from here on out. Not only that, but they had actually a really weird dynamic with Elvis Costello and their bass player Kate because Elvis Costello and Kate actually formed a relationship and the two of them just left together. They left to go have their romantic relationship and so the band was left without Elvis Costello their bass player, and subsequently the female part for the Christmas song. So they now at this point had no female lead vocal that could be on this Christmas tune. So they were left without that as well. So those were just some struggles that they were going through while they were trying to make this Christmas song. It seems like almost the world was kind of against them doing it, but the problems at their recording studio were eventually resolved and the Pokes were finally able to record again in early 1987 to start work on their third album. Now they were producing with Steve Lillywhite. Great. So Elvis Costello wasn't there. They have Steve Lillywhite to produce this next album and to produce the Christmas single. Awesome. A new demo of Fairy Tale in New York was recorded at Abbey Road Studios in March 1987 with Shane singing both the male and female roles. However, it just it just wasn't going to end up working like that. It just didn't sound right that he would sing both parts. So they still needed this female singer. However, it was not until the third set of recording sessions in August 1987 in the nearby RAK Studios that it was suggested that Steve Lillywhite take the track back to his home studio and let his wife, Kirsty McCall, who was actually a singer in her own right, lay down a vocal for this song. So he brings it home to his wife, Kirsty, and she's a singer. Um, she's a very well-renowned singer, apparently. And he said, hey, can you at least like put some vocal on this just so we can have a guide for maybe getting something better in the future? So, all right. She sets aside some time. She sings her vocals and she goes back to doing whatever she wants to do. This was not intended for her to be the actual singer on the song. This just kind of came by happenstance. But however, when the band and when her husband, Steve, heard her vocal, they were like, yes, we finally found the female vocalist that we were looking for. Interestingly enough, though, they didn't meet Kirsty and Shane. They didn't actually meet to record their vocals together. The first time they met, I believe, was when they were doing the music video, which I'm going to talk about next. So now that they finally had this Christmas song already recorded, now they needed a music video. So this is where Peter and Matt Dillon come into play for this music video. 
The video was directed by Peter and it was filmed in New York during a cold week in November of 1987. The video opens with Shane sitting at a piano and he mimics the opening piano part of the song, of course. However, because Shane couldn't actually play the piano, the close-up shot in the music video actually featured the hands of the band's pianist firmly and he was wearing Shane's rings on his fingers so that no one could be the wiser. It just looked like it was Shane playing the piano when in actuality, he couldn't play the piano to save his life. So that was pretty funny. Fernley later said that he found this experience of miming Shane playing the piano humiliating, but he accepted the idea that it looked so much better in the video to show that, you know, Shane was seated at the piano and that he was actually playing. So he was like, okay, I'll accept this for what it is. Part of the video was actually filmed inside of a real police station in the Lower East Side of New York. And Matt Dillon plays a police officer who arrests Shane and he takes him into the cells, also known as the drunk tank. Shane and the rest of the band were drinking heavily throughout the shoot. The police were becoming increasingly concerned with the very rowdy behavior of the band in the cells. And Matt Dillon, who was the only sober one apparently on the set, had to intervene and reassure the police that there was no problems to be had. However, the police were actually drunk as well, not gonna lie. I will say that in a second here. That's actually pretty funny. Everyone was drinking. What can you do? It is what it is, right? So the chorus of the song includes the line, the boys of the NYPD choir still singing Galway Bay. But in reality, number one, the NYPD doesn't have a choir. And they don't even know that song to begin with. The closest thing that the NYPD has to some kind of choir or some kind of band group is called the NYPD Pipes and Drums Club. And these are the cops that are featured in the music video. And these are the ones that are singing um, in the music video too. And so again, like they don't know the words to this Galway Bay song. They have no idea. And so they all pulled together and they were like, okay, what song do we all know that we can mime the words to? Um, the Mickey Mouse March from the Mickey Mouse Club TV show. That song. Yeah, that's the one that they all decide, right? We know this song collectively. Let's just sing this song. And what's really funny, because clearly this is not Galway Bay. The footage was slowed down and it was only shown in brief increments to disguise the fact that the Pipes and Drums Club was singing a different song. So that's pretty funny. So that's a little fun fact. When you see the police singing in this music video, let it be known that they were singing the theme song for the Mickey Mouse Club TV series, okay? Fun fact. And yes, it was said that these Pipes and Drums members were drinking heavily. They were drinking on the coach that brought them to the video shoot. And by the time that they arrived... They were even more so drunk than the band, and they refused to work unless they were supplied with more alcohol. So, okay, so now we're getting into the main controversy of the song. The song's lyrics garnered a lot of attention from the very beginning because of some of the words that were used, particularly in the second verse, right, which is the back and forth section between the male and the female character, where they're just like shouting insults at each other. So Shane's character refers to Kirsty's as an old slut on junk, to which Kirsty responds with the word faggot and arse. It is what it is. 
Um, so people, when they heard this, they were like, oh my God, unbelievable. How dare you say these things? So when they first performed this song on Top of the Pops on its initial release, the BBC requested that Kirstie's singing of the word arse be replaced with the less offensive ass. Weirdly enough, I don't, I don't know how that makes it any less offensive. It's still the same word, but okay. So during a live performance of the Top of the Pops in January 1992, a bit later, Kirstie changed the lyrics further, singing, you're a cheap and you're haggard, instead of what I said before. In December 2018, two broadcasters on Ireland's RTE2 pop music station caused controversy by asking for the word faggot to be bleeped from broadcast of the song. However, the radio station was like, no. We're not censoring these words. You can go screw yourself. So these two broadcasters were like, can we like maybe not have these words? And the radio station itself was like, you can sit down actually, because we're playing the song as it is. So thank you. (laughs) And then some days later, Shane defended the lyrics in a statement released to Virgin Media Television's The Tonight Show. So this is what he had to say about the lyrics. The word was used by the character because it fitted with the way she would speak and with her character. She's not supposed to be a nice person or even a wholesome person. She's a woman of a certain generation at a certain time in history, and she is down on her luck and desperate. Her dialogue is as accurate as I could make it, but she is not intended to offend. She is just supposed to be an authentic character and not at all characters in songs and stories are angels or are even decent and respectable. Sometimes characters in songs and stories have to be evil or nasty to tell the story effectively. If people don't understand that I was trying to accurately portray the character as authentically as possible, then I am absolutely fine with them bleeping the word, but I don't want to get into an argument. And that's fair enough. The following year, on November 19th, 2020, Pink News journalist Josh Milton described what seemingly is the annual argument over whether or not the word was offensive as Britain's worst festive tradition. I thought I should leave this quote from journalist Helen Brown of the Daily Telegraph because I actually think what she has to say about the lyrics is actually pretty interesting. Um, So this is what she had to say. In careening wildly through a gamut of moods from maudlin to euphoric, sentimental to profane, mudslinging to sincerely devoted in the space of four glorious minutes, it's seemingly perfectly suited to Christmas, a time which highlights the disparity between the haves and the have-nots around the world. Those of us lucky enough to spend the day with friends and families by a cozy fire with a full stomach think of the lonely, the homeless, and the hungry. As McCall and McGowan's dialogue descends from the ecstasy of their first kiss into an increasingly vitriolic argument, their words puts the average family's seasonal bickering into perspective. You're a bum, you're a punk, you're an old slut on junk. The song's row ends with an expression of love and hope, against all odds, as McGowan's character promises McCall's that, far from wrecking her dreams, he has kept them with his own. Can't make it all alone, he pleads. I've built my dreams around you. Like, yeah, Helen, go off. I really thought that was really important what she said there. And that's a really interesting point that, listen, not everyone around the holidays has this picture-perfect life 
with their family or with their friends. Some people are alone. Some people don't have the support system around them to have a good holiday. And that is what it is for some people. And so not everyone has the picture perfect Christmas that you see on like postcards or in films or TV, you know, all these other ones. It's like, you know, this is actually the most realistic Christmas song that I've ever heard. I was really interested in talking about this song, to be honest, because I think I think everyone needs to hear it. I don't know. I think what she had to say was really important and it's true. And I wanted to mention that. So the song was released in the UK and Ireland in November 1987 and instantly became a hit, spending five weeks at number one in the Irish charts. It's been proved popular with both music critics and to the public. To date, the song has reached the UK top 20 on 18 separate times since 1987, including every year at Christmas since 2005. So again, like this song, this Christmas song in particular, I think is the UK's biggest Christmas song of all time. As of September 2017, the song sold 1.2 million copies in the UK with an additional 250,000 in streaming sales for a cumulative total of 1.4 million combined sales. Like that's madness for a Christmas song. In November 2020, the song was certified quadruple platinum in the UK for 2,400,000 combined sales. In the UK, Fairy Tale of New York is the most played Christmas song of the 21st century, and it's frequently cited as the best Christmas song of all time in various TV, radio, and magazine polls in the UK and Ireland. So that's basically the whole story of the Pogues Fairy Tale of New York Christmas song. Isn't that so interesting? I mean, honestly, the whole thing about it is really, really, really fascinating. I mean, they spent two years trying to come up with this tune. Almost as kind of like a challenge from various people. Um, and they came up with it. And it just so happened that Kirstie McCall was the one to be the female part. And of course, with the lyrics, it's been plagued since the 80s, since its release of being so controversial. Like, oh, how can they use these words? I mean, like, you know, I understand, but at the same time, listen to what Shane had to say on the lyrics, which I mentioned earlier, the quote that I read from him. It's like, listen, this is, this, this is what these characters are portraying, and not everyone is nice and fanciful, especially for a Christmas song. So I like that. I have a lot more respect for the song in general. However, I had to end it on this really funny note because as I was researching the song, apparently I found that Bon Jovi covered this song last year as part of a three-track EP called A John Bon Jovi Christmas. Now, I will not even attempt to listen to this song because I don't want to ruin my ears. I don't want to deafen myself. I already kind of don't like Bon Jovi and I don't want that song to be ruined by him. This is widely renowned as the worst, the worst cover of all time. It's like, it's so horrifically bad. Apparently, he rewrote some of the lyrics and he sang both vocal parts for the male and female thing. So Bon Jovi's out here doing the most. I don't know why, like, I don't get it, but okay. 
So yeah, it's it's labeled as one of the worst songs, especially of 2020, um, and that's unfortunate. What was really funny, this is what I wanted to mention. So the Pogues, of course, they hear this song, and they inadvertently shame Bon Jovi by retweeting what Irish musician Rob Smith had to say about it. So this is what Rob Smith had to say on Twitter about the song. It's really, it's really funny. Okay. So he says, I have heard Bon Jovi's cover of Fairy Tale of New York. It's the worst thing to ever happen to music. And I'm including both the murder of John Lennon and Brian McFadden's solo career in there. This is worse. So the Pogues retweeted that and they added what Rob said <laughs> to their tweet. It's like, oof. And then Steve Lillywhite, again, who was the producer of the original song, he wrote as well, the worst ever version of this song, sorry, John, embarrassing and pointless. So just don't mess with greatness. Why do you have to take something that's so great and then fuck it up? Especially when it's Bon Jovi. I just don't get it. But you know what? Listen, I personally am not a fan of Bon Jovi. If you're a fan of Bon Jovi, Sorry to have offended you there if you like this cover version, but apparently it's the worst thing ever of all time, especially since last year. I would highly actually recommend you listen to the original. Please don't listen to this trash. I just thought it was funny to add at the end of this, like, hey, Bon Jovi sucks. <laughs> and what he put out was even worse. So <sighs> there you go. The Pogues, Fairy Tale of New York. Go listen to that song if you haven't. It's quite a nice song, I gotta admit. Like, the whole thing, it sounds really nice. It's a great song. I'll just leave it at that. Some people might not think so. I think for a Christmas song, it's the most non-Christmas Christmas song of all time. And I love it. It's different. It's like the anti-Christmas song in the best way possible. You know how you have anti-heroes in, like, Marvel or DC or comic books that people love? It's the same thing here. Like, it's the anti-Christmas song. I love it. I really love it. And so there you go. There is the story. I do hope you guys have a really awesome Christmas and a lovely holiday season. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the last week of December off so that I can come back in the new year fresh and I have time to prepare for the big um, episode that I'm going to start the new year off with. It's going to be really, really fascinating. So I just want time to research that and to get all my notes and facts together before I present it. So I will see you guys back in the new year of 2022. Hope you guys have an awesome day and that you learned something that you hadn't known or learned about before. I will see you guys in the new year with a new episode of On The Mix. Take care. Bye, guys. Bye.